So uh, all this month, as Shira just said, uh, we've been in a conversation about life and really taking the time to reflect on uh, the normal that we all knew, whatever that was for you pre-COVID. And instead of kind of just wishing that we could all somehow kind of tunnel back there, um, asking the question, is, is what we had back there worth going back to to begin with? And, and what if in this moment in our lives where so many things are shifting around and so many things have changed, that God is actually inviting us forward and not, and not backward? And so we've been exploring these opportunities uh, to intentionally kind of shift some things around, to really uh, move boldly into the future that God has for us. And so we've talked about things like wisdom and rest and our interior life. And today we're actually going to finish up and switch gears a little bit. Uh, before we do that, though, I want to let you know that next week we're actually kicking off a brand new series for the month of February uh, entitled How to Kill a Relationship. And, uh, and so we're going to be talking all month long, surprisingly, about relationships. And uh, it's going to be a lot of fun. And regardless of whatever your relationship status is, uh, I think you'll actually get something out of it. So I hope you'll make plans to join us and maybe even bring somebody with you uh, for uh, our relationship series uh, starting starting next week. So uh, if you do me a favor real quick, if you there's a card in your seat that just uh, says connect on it or scan to learn more. If everybody grab that card and grab a pen, uh, I'm going to have you do a little bit of an exercise. So you're just going to write on the back of that card. I'm not going to have you do anything weird. You don't have to fill anything out. You're not going to turn it in. This is just for your, your purposes here this morning. Uh, and so uh, if you have a pen, you have that card just on the back. Um, if How many would say in the last 12 months, like just generally speaking, when it comes to uh, the, the finances in your life, that, that you're actually gaining some altitude. And so if so, just put like an arrow pointing up that, that things are looking up, that things are healthier, that things are good, uh, things, you know, your job is strong. Maybe, you know, you came into some sort of finances this year, or you got some things together, or you paid off some debt. Like you're, overall, you're sort of gaining some altitude. So you're gonna put an arrow pointing up. And, and, then, and then on the other side, if... Uh, you know, over the course of the last 12 months, you know, there's some things that happened in your job or things aren't going well, or maybe you lost your job or just, just some things that have shifted around and, and you're losing altitude, uh, just take it and put an arrow pointing down uh, if that's you. And, and, uh, and then finally, if you're here this morning and, um, and you, you came with maybe, maybe with someone who, who is partially responsible for you losing altitude, just take an arrow and kind of point it in their direction and just be like, yep, it's them right there. They're the problem I've always had with money. Uh, I, I don't know if you've ever seen, thanks for playing along, by the way. I don't know if you've ever seen uh, somebody who, who did something with money or they made some financial decision and you thought, man, that is absolutely insane. Why would they ever do that? I would never do that. Why in the heck? So I, I was uh, not the best college student when I was college age. And so um, I actually didn't finish my degree until I was into my 30s when I actually could figure out what I was doing and how to be an adult and how to go to class and do assignments and all that stuff. And so I was an older student when I was going to college and I was surrounded by, you know, 18 to 22 year olds. And, uh, and man, they made terrible decisions all the time with money. In fact, there are so many students that I was in class with and every, about every semester when, when, uh, when the student loan stuff was kind of renewing or you know, when it was time for that, to, like people would intentionally, like they didn't need all of the money. They didn't even need more than half of the money, but they would intentionally take out the full amount of the student loan 
and then pay what they needed to pay on their school bill and then just kind of like live it up for a few weeks uh, going into the semester. And I just remember like going like as a 30-something with like debt and stuff like that and a family just going, man, that is just insane. What are you doing? And it's not just on the wasteful side though either, right? Like my wife's grandparents and maybe you have some folks in your in your family, uh, but they, they lived through the Great Depression. And so they were frugal in ways that most of us would never think about. Uh, and and I, was, I was around them uh, about the last 30 or so years of their lives. I met them uh, when I was 12, when I met Hansi. And, uh, and they had the money to do whatever it was that they wanted because they had saved and they just, you would never know it, but they had just you know, the money to do whatever they wanted in their life, but they didn't change anything. And they still shopped at the Goodwill and, you know, they would haggle with the Goodwill over prices. And, you know, I'm like, it's the Goodwill, it's used. Like just pay full price. Uh, whenever, you know, they didn't eat out very much. In fact, they only ate out with us, uh, with the family when it was like birthdays and stuff like that. And so, uh, but when they did, Popo, um, he would always like collect all the unopened straws from the table and like put them in his pocket and take them home. And I don't know like what he was going to do with those or like just in case there was a great straw shortage or something. Uh, but what, what's, what's interesting is that most of the time when you see, you know, one of these situations, right? If you take the time to actually talk to people and hear their stories and what kind of, you know, what kind of background they had or what kind of stuff they've been through, the decision that they make kind of starts to make a little bit of sense. It might still be unwise, right? It might still be unnecessary, but at least you can understand it a little bit. Now, I wanted to let you in on a little bit of a secret this morning is that you, you and I have done some pretty crazy stuff with money too. Uh, I know I definitely have. Like, like, have you ever gotten to the end of the month or the end of a year or, or looked at your bank statement or you're filing taxes because it is the season, right? Or, or maybe you're just kind of looking at a giant pile of receipts and you thought like, where, where did it all go? I'm not even sure what happened to it all or what I did with it all. I think I had a little bit of fun or I think it all went over there. H- have you ever looked back and been surprised by how much you spent on something? Like, like, I think in the last, one of the things that came to mind for me is like in the last 10 years is like, we all sort of woke up to how much we were paying for cable television. And we're like, what is happening right now? Like I'm paying four, three, $400 for cable. Like when I can have, you know, every streaming service out there for like a hundred bucks, right? Or, or have you had a moment, you know, where, where the time and the money and the effort that you put into something didn't produce the kind of reward that you thought it would, right? Or, or it just didn't feel as good as you hoped it would. Because we all have moments where, like the dis, you know, where we're disappointed because the return we got didn't really match the investment that we made in something. And if you're anything like me, like that started happening more and more and more as I've gotten older. And what's interesting is that at the time that we made those decisions, the crazy thing is that the, 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 all the things that we've done, like, they didn't seem crazy to us in the moment. Even if it was kind of dumb, it it still kind of actually made sense to us. Because here's the deal. We make financial decisions based on experience, not on intelligence, right? Like the, the, the decisions we make are way more emotional than they are intellectual. 
Right? We want to believe that we're these rational creatures and we decide things based on information and data, but we're not and we don't. Right? The truth is, our life experiences actually are the things that fuel our decisions way, way, way beyond, way more than logic does in almost every area of our life, which includes what we do for and what we do with money. I'll give you an example. So uh, my parents got divorced when I was really young. So my mom was a single mom and my mom is awesome. She was a great mom. She was a single mom that worked hard. And, but we were, we were dirt poor and I didn't know we were dirt poor until I got into junior high and other kids told me I was dirt poor. And I was like, oh, I kind of actually am poor. Um, but because my mom was a single mom raising five kids on one income and, 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 uh, and getting you know, public assistance and stuff like that, like we never, ever, ever bought anything brand, brand name at the grocery store. And, uh, and, and we didn't buy box cereal. We bought the bag cereal that's kind of on the bottom shelf, you know, the Malto meal. So you don't get Fruit Loops, you get Fruity O's. Um, and you, we didn't even buy like the store's knockoff brand. We bought the knockoff brand of the store's knockoff brand. And so as I grew up, you know, we had all these weird brands in our house that when I would go to, like nobody else had these brands. Like we, we didn't eat Oreos. We had, anybody remember Hydrox cookies? Anybody have those? They're like the worst imitation Oreos ever. And so I made this decision when I was in high school, when I was old enough to make my own money, to live my life the way, like I was gonna buy name brand everything. Like I don't care if I'm overpaying. I'm buy, and, and it's really difficult for me to this day to walk into a store and buy something that's just like an off brand. Like I, and, and it's not, I know it's irrational, but it's, I'm driven by something way deeper than anything to do with logic. And the truth is, is that you, you may not have that same exact situation, but, but you have experiences and baggage and, and things that have happened to you or things you've been through or things that you watched or saw unfold, right? See, facts and figures don't actually steer our decisions as much as the details of our stories do. Stories that revolve around dinner discussions and couch conversations and company meetings and phone calls with friends and a million other things, a million other experiences. And, and what science has discovered is that we make decisions about things like work and money and finances from places where our personal history and our unique view of how the world works and our ego and our pride and marketing and fear and all kinds of other sort of odd and random incentives and motivations all get sort of scrambled together into a narrative, into a story that's playing in our, in our minds. And often we're not even aware that it's that narrative that is subconsciously calling the shots when it comes to how we live and what we spend our money on and what we do and what we're willing to do and how we save and all that stuff. So when you, when you think about it from that perspective, it's not hard to to look at ourselves and, and other people and the, some of the crazy things that we've done and with money and the financial decisions that we've made and yet, and yet see how it's still in the moment, at least at the time, made sense to us. You have people from different generations raised by different parents and different families who earn different incomes and held different values in different parts of the war, world, born into different economies and experiencing different job markets with different incentives and different degrees of luck or opportunity. And when that happens, they learn very different lessons about money. 
So in other words, we're all telling ourselves a story about what we're doing and why we're doing it, and that story has been shaped by our own individual experiences. So if how we spend our time and energy and resources is actually telling a story, the question kind of hanging over all of our lives is, are we telling a story that we actually want to tell? Right? Is it a story worth telling? Is it a story that we designed or have we just kind of been swept along by the default story of our own experiences? And, and, and what if you wanted to actually change your story or change your family's story? What then? Is it possible to, to change our deeply embedded economic compass? And if so, how do we do that? I, I was the first person ever in my family and still, I, I think I still hold this distinction. And I have a huge family to a first person to ever have gone to college and gotten a degree in, in anything. So how do, we, how do we change and shift? How do we interrupt our story? How do we interrupt what's happening in our family and in our community? Because eventually, like we all feel the limited nature of our lives, right? Like whether it's as we age or or, or we slowly lose our ability to do the thing that we were really good at and, and we lose our ability to do it as good as we used to be able to do it. And all of a sudden we start realizing, oh, like I'm, time is catching up with me. Or, or, or just all the tensions around finances and money and how we get it and what we do with it and what does it mean and what, how do we spend it. And like, or, or it's just all of that stuff mixed together. Like we all feel the limited nature of our lives. And I, I think that was one of the things that, that was so challenging about this last year, right? Is that we were reminded just how fragile and impermanent our life is. We were reminded just how little control we have of certain things. And so we're obviously not the first people to feel these tensions or to wrestle with them. In fact, James, who was the half-brother of Jesus, he actually observed this about life in James chapter 4, verse 14. He says, life, it's like the morning fog. It's here a little while, and then it's gone. Well, what a great picture, right? It's here, it's real, but then it's gone, and it goes faster than you think it will. And so one of the conversations that when you look in the scriptures that God has over and over and over again with humanity is this idea that money can actually add meaning to your life, but it's, but it's not the meaning of life. And what's funny is when we hear that, because of all the stuff I just said a second ago, we all like hear that and we nod in agreement. It's true because logically we know it's true. But remember, we don't live according to logic, right? So we, we live according to emotions and experience. So we nod like, yeah, money is not, you know, it's not the meaning of life. That is 100% true, but I'm still going to structure my life and go about my business as if it is the meaning of life. This guy Solomon in Proverbs chapter 23, verse 5, he says, in the blink of an eye, wealth or money disappears for it will sprout wings and fly away like an eagle, like an eagle. Anyone, anybody ever experienced that? Like, yay, we got money. Wait, where'd it go? Like, I don't, I don't know what happened. Like that, that's the, that's the perfect picture of our experiences with how, you know, how we earn money and what happens to it, right? See, when it comes to the substance of our lives, 
Part, part of what the conversation that God's wanting to engage us in is this, is if you don't decide what to do with what you have, it'll simply disappear without you actually di- having directed any of it. Without you having decided that what came to me, what was entrusted to me, what I went out and exchanged my, the hours, of the, the time of my life, my time and energy in exchange to get that money, like, like I, I, everything that I got, like I didn't actually direct any of it. It just came in and left and I don't even know what happened to it. Because everything you've got, your time, your talents, your resources, your energy, your intellect, they'll all eventually be gone. So where do you want them to go while you still have them. What kind of story do you want to tell with all of that stuff? So several times this month, we've actually circled back to this really pivotal moment in the scriptures uh, that, that takes place around the Jewish exodus in the Old Testament where, they, where God um, rescued the people, the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And... and, and if you think about it for a second in, in this context, right? Can you imagine how that experience, and, and they just weren't in slavery for a little while. There were 400 years of slavery. Uh, the, the nation of Israel was enslaved in Egypt. And, and can you imagine how that experience would imprint itself when it comes to your view of money? Like how it would imprint on your soul and on your mind and, and how it would like dictate the story that's playing in your head, right? Like nothing you owned was yours, Anything you had could be taken from you at any time. You had to survive on the bare minimum that was almost not survivable. You, you had to grab a hold of all you could when you could because you didn't know when you'd get another chance. And so even after they were no longer slaves, that's exactly what they did. They would hide and kind of hoard whatever they had to keep it from being taken. They, they still lived anxious and afraid and that was the problem. They had been set free, but they didn't actually know how to live free. And so over time, God begins laying down instructions and guidelines for them to reset their economic compass, to help them establish new habits so they could actually begin to tell a better story with their lives, with their time, with their energy, and with their stuff. And so he tells them things like this, and we're just going to kind of read off a whole bunch of these things that are from the Old Testament. He tells them things like, when, when, you, when you harvest your crops, don't harvest to the very edges of your fields, and don't strip the plants and the vines bare, but instead, leave those areas for the poor. He says, don't be hard-hearted and tight-fisted towards those with less than you. Be generous, and God will bless you in everything you do. In Proverbs chapter 11, verse 25, it says that the generous, like those are the people who will actually prosper in life. Later on, he says, set aside a tithe, the tenth of all you have, bring it into the place of worship. When you do, it will teach you to fear and trust God. In Psalm 24, verse 1, it says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. In Malachi chapter 3, it says, bring all the tithes into the temple and trust, trust me first and I will open the windows of heaven for you and I'll pour out blessings that you won't have great, you know, like you won't even have enough room to take it in, right? What, what was he trying to do when he was saying all these things? He was teaching them to shift their story, to move beyond where they had been to something better. It, it was changing their deepest beliefs by changing their daily behaviors. Now, I know to our 21st century mind and all the baggage we have around like God and religion and money, like sometimes like God and, reli- like, God and, and money is kind of like, 
it feels like God and politics. It's like, you know, just stay out of it, God. Like, I do my Sunday thing. Like, you are, you know, you want to have conversations with me about my life. That's cool. But like money, business, I got it. You stay over there. And so I know, like with all of our baggage around religion and money, like that stuff, like a lot of what he said and those scriptures that I just read and so many more like them, right, that they seem antiquated and controlling and restrictive to us. But, but the truth is when you go and you read the story of the people that God was saying this to, and as they begin to embrace the things that he said and move towards that kind of life, it was actually life-changing and life-giving to them. It, it wasn't about money. It was, about, it was just about life. And so God was saying to them, look, the default settings that, that you have and that you're surrounded with, like they don't work. And, and the only way that you can outgrow a small sort of self-centered, anxious, hold on, grab everything you can and hold on to as tight as you can. The only way that you can actually outgrow that kind of a story is just through intentionally being generous by making a commitment to give away some of what you have on a regular basis. And so uh, all through the Old Testament, there's all these scriptures and all the ones I read you and all the things that God is saying to them. And, and then Jesus comes on the scene and he actually picks up that same theme and then begins to expand on it. So last week we actually talked about the, the idea of priority when it, comes to, when it comes to rest and taking time off from work and rejuvenating and allowing ourselves to to, uh, to, to experience a, a little bit of a, a, a break. And, and part of what we read was from Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which says this. It says, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. And if you go back and read about all the things he's talking about, he's talking about all the stuff of life. He's talking about food and shelter and clothing and all the things that we spend all of our time thinking about and obsessing over and what are we gonna do and how do we get more and what... And he's like, look, there, there's, there, there's an order to this stuff. So what, here's what he's saying, right? Is that when it comes to God and money, it's not an either or. It's, it's actually about priority. Like there, there's an order that you can put your life in and that the, the way that we tell better stories with our money is that we prioritize something else above it. He's saying something's gotta go first. And when you make it where you don't go first, you actually find more joy, more peace, more meaning in your life. It's not an either or, it's a one and two. Somebody's kingdom has to come first. See, and the truth is, is that when we put us first, well, we usually come in last. When you put you first, you have a difficult time saying no to you. And your default story takes over and you're driven by your fear and your anxiety and maybe a little bit of selfishness mixed in there, right? And you, you can be free. And this is, I think, the perfect description of so many of us when it comes to different areas of our lives, but especially when it comes to our finances, is that we, we are free, but we never actually live like it. So we put something ahead of us and Jesus actually says that the something that we should put ahead of us, the something that we should put at the sort of the front of the four of our lives is him, his kingdom, his love, his life. And he invites us into this mystery and something I don't really fully understand and, and I can't fully explain, but he says it this way in Luke chapter six. 
Verse 38, he says, give. So he's talking about generosity, right? He's talking about what we do with our stuff and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together and running over. It will be poured into your lap, which sounds a lot like what God said in that scripture that we read in Malachi, which is like, I will actually give to you and so you won't have the room in your life to hold what I wanna give to you. Now, I have been in churches and I grew up in churches and I've heard people who have talked about these scriptures and, and, and they leverage them to play on our own, at least, and I'm just gonna like critique here for a second, to play on our own innate sense of like selfishness. So the reason we give is to get, and that is actually not at all what he's talking about here. He actually was declaring that the way of his kingdom and his life is generosity. But in doing that, he's letting us know that it's not just a one-sided equation, that he's, that he's inviting us to let him take care of us. So he invites us into the mystery of being open-handed with our life and open-handed with our story and open-handed with our stuff. Most of the economic wisdom in the Bible for managing money, we would agree with. Like God warns us against the dangers of debt. And if you've ever had a decent amount of debt or any debt at all, you go, ah, that makes sense, right? That, like, don't do it. Stay away, flee. Dave Ramsey's right. Stay out of it. God talks about the importance of saving money. And even though statistically, according to you know, all the data, very few of us actually do that, but that makes sense to us. Yeah, the idea of saving money, that's a good idea. But then he also actually challenges our belief about how we handle the stuff that we have. And for some reason, by, and, and, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you get to be off the hook. Like you're, you're off the hook. You just get to listen while the rest of us who say, yeah, like I believe in God and I'm a follower of Jesus, like while he's having this conversation with us. So like there's zero pressure on you. You just get to kind of listen in. Some reason, we don't have enough faith in God to trust that when I give something away, that he's gonna take care of me and I actually receive something back. And yet that's exactly what Jesus is talking about. Now, I, I, don't, I don't fully understand how all that works, but I can tell you that I've experienced it in my life over and over and over again. See, here's the really interesting thing when you actually look at history and you actually look at the scriptures and you look at the New Testament. What attracted people to early Christians was not their theology. It was their generosity. People weren't like, oh, you believe in God? That's really unique. Tell us more. No, they're like, yeah, join the crowd. Everybody believes in God. Everybody has a faith. Everybody believes in something. But the way that you live, now that is different, right? It was the way that they lived. It was the trade-offs that they were willing to make. It was that they gave of themselves to bless other people, that the, the stories they told with their lives, people who thought that what they believed was crazy were still drawn to them because of how they lived. And I know that's like a big statement, but let me show you what I mean. Uh, and, and this is actually his, history. This isn't even Bible stuff, but, but history actually tells us that in 165 AD, so if you go to the book of Acts, 
you know, and, and you're reading the book of Acts, the part of, you're going to start, pick up the story, you know, somewhere right around 33 AD, and it's going to run to roughly 50 AD, right? So this is a full hundred years later, but 165 AD, there was a plague that swept through the Roman Empire that killed up to a third of the residents in almost every city that it, that, that it hit. Now, um, like we can sort of relate a little bit to the idea of a pandemic or a plague, um, but, but just think for a second, the Treasure Valley, this valley's kind of pushing towards, you know, upwards of a million people, give or take, you know, uh, 100,000 here or there. Um, and, and we're not talking about one and a half percent like death rate. We're talking about 33, 34. So, so you're talking about 350,000 people in this valley, boom, wiped out, dead. We don't want to talk about panic and pandemic. So the historian, there's a guy named Rodney, Rodney Stark. He is a professor at Baylor, at Baylor University. And, and he, he actually writes about this plague that happened. And he said that all the doctors and all the priests and all the leaders of every other faith fled, but the Christians stayed in their cities to care for people who were sick. He said they were willing to give everything, even their own lives to help others. And he went on, and, and remember, he's a sociologist, he's a historian, he's a professor, he's not a pastor, he's not a priest. This is what he said. He said, while Aristotle taught that the gods cared nothing about human beings, right? You could go to the temple of the goddess Isis and nobody was standing outside at the, at the, at the exit when you came out saying, hey, give a little bit of money to help the poor. Nobody was doing that. He's, and he went on to say, but what Christianity gave to the world was nothing less than a new vision of what it meant to be a human being, and that's why the church grew for 40% per year for 400 years. In 300 AD, so another 150 years later, some Greeks decided to write out an explanation for why the movement of Jesus spread so rapidly across the Roman Empire. And, and what, they, what they wrote came to be known as the letter of Diognetus. And here's what they said. They said, with regard to dress and food and the manner of life in general, Christians follow the customs of whatever city they happen to be living in, whether it's Greek or foreign. And yet there is something extraordinary about their lives. They live their life in the flesh, but they are not governed by the desires of the flesh. They pass their days upon the earth, but they seem to be citizens of another place. They're obedient to the laws, yet they live on a level that transcends the law. Christians love all men in spite of of seemingly all men persecuting them, condemned because they're not understood. They are put to death, but raised to life again. They live in poverty, but they enrich many. They're totally destitute, but somehow they possess an abundance of everything. In other words, a couple hundred years, 250 years after Jesus, the thing that he was speaking about and the story that was being told was still happening. They were telling incredible stories with their lives and with their finances, with their families, with who they were. And that's, that's actually what God invites us into. See, none of, none of it ever at any point, when you look at the scriptures, was ever about just trying to get people to give their money. Because in fact, if you read the scriptures, the apostle Paul says, you gotta decide in your own heart what to give and nobody should compel you. Like th this, this is not like 
guilt-tripping people. And so if you've ever experienced that, can I just stand in the place of those people and that pastor and that church and just say, I'm so sorry, that was wrong. This was never about that. It's, it's the idea that we're building something together that we could never build alone, that, that we're building something life-giving and life-changing, that we're actually shifting our story to not just be about us and the few people that we are trusted with, but that we're actually banding together with others to tell something, to do something really beautiful in the world. We're changing our family story and our community's story. It's an invitation to trade in the life that we inherit and that we sort of naturally move towards for the life that we were created for by God. And God knew that we wouldn't do that or we couldn't do that without changing how we behave towards money. Now, by the way, if you're really good and uncomfortable and feeling all kinds of tension and pushback, can I just say this? Like, if, if there is a God and he wanted your money, he'd just take it, okay? Um, he wouldn't try to trick you and guilt you into religious rules and regulations, right? So this has nothing to do with what God wants from you. It has everything to do with what he wants for you. So the question for you this morning is, what is your life building? I, I don't know, has anybody ever played the game, the whole like, what if we won the lottery game? Anybody ever played that game? Um, so when my wife Hansi and I, when we were first married 25 plus years ago, um, I used to joke about how we would be the best rich people um, if God would just trust us by giving us tons and tons of money, he would be so blown away by how generous we would be <laughs> and how awesome we would be. And we would tell a really amazing story with our money. We wouldn't be like those other rich people that are jerks and keep it for themselves. No, we would just be like, making it rain everywhere we went, right? Like it, it would just be awesome. But then after a while, it kind of like dawned on us that God was already trusting us. Like we didn't have a lot, but we had more than we needed. And, and it hit me one day that if we weren't willing to tell a generous story now, we certainly weren't going to tell a generous story then. But what, what if, just what if, what if the crazy notion, what if that became the new normal? Like if you're a follower of Jesus, what if your new normal became trust and faith and generosity? Like what if that was our story? I want to come to the end of my life and know that I did the best that I could with what I was given, that I told a really big, beautiful, compelling story that honored God and wasn't about me, that I told the story that I wanted to tell, a story that I was proud to hand off to my kids, a story of how I leveraged who I am and what I had for something bigger than me. Let's pray together. God, thank you so much for today. Lord, you know um, what a tricky conversation this can be for, um, for churches to have and for people to sit through. And, and, and God, we all feel the tension, like that, that tension we feel whenever money comes up. God, it should be actually an indicator to us that there's something going on inside the human heart when it comes to 
our finances, when it comes to money, when it comes to trusting you. And so, Lord, you see my heart. God, you know all of my motivations. And um, Lord, I, I pray this morning for every person in this room, every family in this room, God, that, that you would begin to work through our hearts and minds about the kinds of stories we're telling and the kinds of people we are and what we're passing on to our kids and our families and the legacy we're leaving. And, and Lord, at the very least, that this morning would be a day that we begin to think about the narrative that's playing in our head, that's, that's driving our motivations, that's driving our decisions and the things that we do. God, that we would begin to think through and interrupt that story and begin to intentionally leverage our experiences, God, our, our stuff, our hard-earned money. God, we would begin to leverage that to tell a, def- a different story. And Lord, I, I don't fully get it, but I do know that there's something beautiful that happens when we actually put your kingdom first and we begin to trust you first. Lord, I look back over my own life, the last 25 years, and thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars given right off the top to what you were doing your kingdom, to honor you, to love people, to be generous. Got all of the things. And, and Lord, it wasn't easy. It was scary. But God, as I now I'm here and I look back, I realize I wouldn't trade it. I wouldn't trade any of it. Because what I've received on the back end, the way that you have been with me and what you've done for me and my family, God, I, I wouldn't trade any of that. No amount of money could buy it. And Lord, that's what I want for every family here. For us to be able to tell a really compelling, really beautiful story as a faith community of South Hills Church. God, we have a really big valley that's getting bigger all the time. Lots and lots of people that need your love, that need a place of hope, that need to know that there's a God who loves them, that, that there's someone who came and died for them God, that their life can be better and stronger and more beautiful. Lord, that's our mission. That's our heart. To make a difference in this valley. So Lord, I I pray for every single one of us, God, that's wrestling with this idea of of taking on the challenge and kind of stepping into that reality of giving to you and prioritizing you first and God, that you would invite those that are ready to take that step. God, we thank you for what you've done for us. We want to be driven and led by that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.